This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. As a scientist, I know that digging up and burning coal and gas and oil produces heat trapping gases that are building up in the atmosphere, wrapping an extra blanket around our planet. And we've known this since the 1850s, not the 1950s even, but the 1850s. From Christianity Today, you're listening to The Bulletin, a podcast about the people, events, and issues shaping our world. I'm Mike Cosper, and I'm joined by Nicole Martin. Russell Moore is out this week. Today, we're going to talk about climate change. Is there a reason for hope? Merriam-Webster's Word of the Year, and why I don't like it. And then, we'll talk about Israel, the trip I just took there, the latest on the war, and the stories coming your way from those travels. Stay with us. So right now in Dubai, an annual meeting of leaders from the UN called COP28 is taking place. This is a summit on climate change and what can be done about it. Like everything else in our world these days, climate change often gets discussed within the context of political polarization, different political tribes, and it's the source of a lot of doom and gloom, and understandably so. But someone who sought to move the issue out of polarized politics and actually frame the discussion with faith and hope is Catherine Hayhoe. Catherine is an atmospheric scientist whose research focuses on understanding the impacts of climate change on people and the planet. She's the chief scientist for the Nature Conservancy. She's also a professor at Texas Tech University and the author of Saving Us, A Climate Scientist's Case for Hope and Healing in a Divided World. Catherine Hayhoe, welcome to The Bulletin. Thank you for having me. Maybe you could describe a little bit where the climate change conversation is right now. What's going to be on the agenda at this summit? And what are climate scientists like yourself hoping gets discussed and addressed? So the world is coming together as they do every year. This is the 28th meeting where all the different governments around the world come together to talk about what more can be done to address climate change. And I particularly keep an eye on the issues of inequity because the reason why I'm a climate scientist is because I'm a Christian. I was actually planning to study astrophysics. That's what my my undergraduate degree is in. But when I learned about not only how urgent climate change is and how it's affecting every aspect of our lives, but how unfair it is in that those who've contributed the least to the problem are the ones bearing the brunt of the impacts That was what spoke to me as a believer. That is just not fair. The people who we are told to love, that we're told to care for, are being most impacted by our actions. A recent analysis by Oxfam showed that the richest 1% of people in the world produce more than double the carbon pollution of the poorest 50%. Yet, if you look at which countries are most impacted by climate change, it's all the poorest 50% countries that are at the top of the list. So... Already, we're just a few days into COP at this point, but we've already seen a big win on an agreement for what they call a loss and damage fund. And a loss and damage fund is where the countries that made all the money off digging up and burning coal and gas and oil 
are actually supporting a fund for the poorest of the poor countries who are, again, bearing the brunt of the impacts in terms of sea level rise, stronger storms, stronger droughts, losing their crops. In Malawi, for example, child marriages are increasing simply because farmers cannot grow the crops to feed their family and they're faced with unthinkable decisions on whether to let the whole family starve or sell a daughter as young as 10 or 12 years old into marriage. These things are happening today. And for me, not just as a scientist, but as a Christian, I am keeping my eye firmly on what we can do for what Jesus called the least of these. I can't help but hear in the back of my mind, friends, colleagues, dare I say pastors who have A, made this a political issue, not a religious issue, and B, who would say, we're making up climate change. It doesn't really exist. I live in Texas, so I hear something like that pretty much every day. (laughs) And as a scientist, I know that digging up and burning coal and gas and oil produces heat trapping gases that are building up in the atmosphere, wrapping an extra blanket around our planet. And we've known this since the 1850s, not the 1950s even, but the 1850s. So when did people start to say, oh, it's not real, it's not us, those scientists aren't sure. Nobody even started to say that until the 1990s when the impacts started to appear. And today, of course, the impacts are all around us. Climate change is supersizing our weather extremes, making hurricanes ratchet up from a tropical storm to category five overnight before they hit Acapulco, making droughts in Syria five times stronger than they would be otherwise, making floods and heat waves and wildfires. I'm from Canada and we had a terrible wildfire season this year. Wildfires are burning greater area. So the impacts are all around us today. But as soon as the impacts became evident, those who knew they had the most to lose by fixing this problem, namely the fossil fuel industry, decided let's take a leaf out of the tobacco industry's book. And they literally did. They took a leaf out of their book and they said, what if we just convince people that it's not so serious or it's not so real? And in the U.S., we can take advantage of the growing political divide in the U.S. that is increasingly pitting people against each other to the point where the U.S. for the last 10 years has been more politically polarized than any time since the Civil War. Whenever we hear anyone these days saying climate isn't changing or humans aren't responsible, their impacts aren't serious, first of all, those comments are 100% ideologically motivated. They do not come from the Bible. They do not come from theology. They do not come from science. They come from politics. The second thing to know is that they don't really have a problem with the science because if they did, they wouldn't be using stoves or fridges or airplanes either because it's the same physics. They have a problem with what they see, perceive to be the solutions, because the solutions are often painted in terms of loss and sacrifice and more liberal versus more conservative values. But the reality is, is if you're truly conservative, small c conservative, and even more, if we actually take the Bible seriously, where it says humans have responsibility over every living thing in Genesis 1, It says we're to be known for our love and our care for each other. That's what Jesus told his disciples we're supposed to be recognized for is our love for others. And then all the way at the end of the Bible in Revelation, it says, God will destroy those who destroy the earth. If we really take the Bible seriously, I'm convinced that we would be at the front of the line demanding climate action. And the good news is there are a lot of Christians already there. How would you say the conversation amongst Christians has changed over the years? Because I feel like there's more of an awareness, more of an openness to this conversation now than there was 10, 12, 15 years ago, for sure. 
even while polarization is worse in many ways than it was. I agree with you. And if you go way back before people even knew about climate change, the concepts of stewardship and caring for being responsible for nature and creation are woven throughout Christianity. You can go back to John Calvin's writings on this. So these themes and these values are not anti-Christian. In fact, I believe that today, caring about the climate crisis and caring about the people who are most affected by it truly is an expression of God's love through us. And I do see this conversation changing. So first of all, I'd like to be clear, I'm actually not a US citizen, I'm Canadian. Growing up in Canada, it was not a politically polarized issue at that time, and it was not divisive within churches. It wasn't until I moved to the U.S. that I realized that there were people who were 100% on the same page as me theologically, but not at all on the same page when it came to climate change. So outside the U.S., there have been Christian leaders to the point where the head of the World Evangelical Alliance, who at the time was Bishop Ephraim Tendero, a Philippine Christian leader, he was an official representative of his country to the Paris Climate Agreement in 2015. So outside the U.S., there is enormous Christian support for action. Inside the U.S., we've been hijacked by our politics, but things are changing, and where they're changing faster is at the younger end of the spectrum. So young people today really get it. They're worried about this issue. They know that it is an issue of justice and equity, and as a Christian, I would add an issue of love. And they are looking for organizations and for churches who share this concern. I remember taking my girls to the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago, and they had this huge kind of glacier exhibit where they show the erosion of the glaciers. And my daughter turns to me, she's eight, and says, you know, mom, when are you going to get an electric car? Because we really need to do a better job of caring for the environment. <laughs> what can we do in churches and beyond to help cultivate younger people to help us better understand and take ownership over justice issues related to the environment? I am so glad you asked that question and I'm with you. So often when you ask people, what can you do? People still bring up recycling and changing their light bulbs or an electric car. And all of those things are good things to do, but to fix this, we have to make the easiest and the most affordable choices for everyone to be the best choices. We need the electric car to be cheaper and easier to get than the more dirty and polluting internal combustion car. We need public transportation to be safer and easier and faster than getting in a car to begin with for people. And there's been tremendous successes, for example, with places that make it free, allowing people to get from point A to point B effectively to their jobs, their kids' schools, and their doctor's appointments. So we need to change the system. And how does the system change? It changes when individuals within that system call for change. So when I look at what an individual can do most effectively, I look at how did the voice of faithful believers contribute to and sway the discussions on civil rights, on ending apartheid, on getting women the vote, on big societal changes that have already happened. And what happened is those advocates, and even going all the way back to advocates like William Wilberforce in the UK advocating against slavery, of course, those advocates walk the walk and talk the talk. The number one thing all of us can do is to be using our voices to connect the dots between who we already are, who has God made us, what we care about with the new heart that he's given us, and how with our hands we can be an expression of God's love to people in our community and to people around us. 
So I, I want to hear you talk about the word hope as well, because that's a word that you don't hear a lot associated with climate change. I think some of it is there's a desire to move people, and the expectation is that the way you're going to move people and motivate them to do things differently, to get concerned about the issues, is with the doom and gloom, is with the fear and the anxiety and all this. And there's been like fascinating research, too, about the effect of this. It actually creates more malaise. You have hit the nail on the head, Mike, because that is exactly the biggest myth or the biggest misconception that I see people falling into today. And no more so than this last summer. Anytime I went on social media, I saw people saying, if this disaster isn't enough to make people act, nothing will be. And so they said that about the Hawaii wildfires. Then they said it about the Canadian wildfires. Then they said it about the Greek wildfires. And they said it about the Canary Islands wildfires. Then they said it about the hot tub temperature ocean water off the coast of Florida. Then they said that about the record-breaking drought in Syria. It just goes on and on. If this isn't enough, what is? Like you just alluded to, they're barking up the wrong tree. When you look around the world, most people are already worried. In the United States, two-thirds of people are already worried. In Texas, where I live, 42% of registered Republican voters agree that climate change poses a threat. So, the, and 92% of Democrats. Now, in my opinion, a thermometer is not conservative, liberal, Democrat, or Republican. <laughs> it should be 100%. Right. But... Will more fear-based messaging move people who are already worried into action? If they're not already activated, they won't. And across the country, you know how many people are activated? 8%. We've got almost hmm. 70% are worried. 8% are activated. Why are the 62% not activated? At the Yale Program on Climate Communication, I work closely with those guys because I love the questions they ask and answer. They asked people who are worried, why aren't you activated? And you know what the number one answer was? There's nothing I can do. I'm just one person. That would have been my guess. Yeah. They didn't know what to do. And they said no one had ever asked them. So that's why I wrote my book, Saving Us. It's because it's all about what can I do that actually makes a difference? Because we all feel like I changed my light bulbs, right? And I fill the recycling bin, but I know that's not going to save the world, right? So what can I do to make a difference? If we know that, that's what activates us. And that's why understanding the power of our voice, because all of us have a voice. doesn't matter how old, how young, we all have a voice. Understanding the power of our voice, I think, is key to moving us from worried and then getting stuck and mired in anxiety and despair into being activated. And that is where we find our hope. And speaking of, of what we believe, though, in the Bible, I find it fascinating that in Romans, Paul begins his definition of hope with suffering. And he says that suffering from suffering... We persevere. From perseverance comes character, and then comes hope that does not disappoint, because ultimately we have placed our hope in God, but God tells us that he has poured out his love into our hearts so that we can share that love with the world around us, and that really is where our hope is rooted. Nicole, I'd love to hear you react to this, because the tone of a lot of climate activism is it's scolding, it's it's angry, it's look what you people are doing to us, to our, our next generations. Like the whole scolding talk. I believe in climate change. I legit think this is real. But that is absolutely demotivating to me. And what it strikes me as so counterproductive because it relies on exactly what some of the worst kind of preaching relies on. Shame does not transform the human heart. It never has. I'm, I'm curious if you thought about that at all, Nicole. 
it does remind me of the kind of hellfire and brimstone that I think my parents experienced in church where the motivation was, if you were to die today, where are you going to go? And because hell is hot, you don't want to go there, so therefore choose Christ. There is a kind of, if you want a world for your next generation or for your grandchildren, you ought to do something. From my vantage point, I don't think that's all that bad. The image of the impact of our actions, I think, can be motivating. The vitriol, like the aggressive, you're the problem, that does cause challenges. But again, going back to having that experience with my kids, seeing the impact of what happens if you do nothing, I think can be motivating. But this could be, Catherine, where your sweet spot is. From a Christian vantage point, The gospel gives us all the hope we need. In order to help advance the kingdom of God, you have to care for the earth. That feels very motivating to me. And it doesn't feel shameful, but it does feel like I do need an element of what if nothing changes? I do need to see that vision. And that's where it gets hard. I agree. And in fact, I was smiling while you were sharing this, Mike, because there's literally a chapter in my book, Saving Us, that talks about shame and guilt and how Mm -hmm. ineffective it is at long-term change. And we have so many misconceptions about the way the human brain works at play here that more doom, more despair, more guilt, more shaming, all these things do is they temporarily make the purveyor of those emotions feel better and slightly more in control for a microsecond. And so I think that those are primarily coping mechanisms for people who do not know how to deal with their own fear. And so by guilting, shaming, or attacking others, that gives them that second of, oh, it's going to be okay because I'm doing something about it. And then the next minute they need it again. Now, let me just say though, for, for young people, who have done absolutely nothing to cause the problem but are bearing the brunt of the impacts, we're leaving them holding the the results, so to speak. I completely understand them scolding the older generation. (laughs) Mm -hmm. They have enormous justification to do that. But for those of us, especially for our peers who are actively guilting and shaming each other, that is not the way forward from a psychological perspective, let alone from a Christian perspective. What would you say are some of the positive signs, signs of hope, signs of encouragement, things that are happening that point to a, an optimistic future. So about a year ago, I started a newsletter called Talking Climate. And every week I wanted to share a piece of good news, a piece of not so good news, because we have to understand what's happening. Like you just said, Nicole, we need to know how bad mm-hmm. it is. And then something that you can do about it. And I was worried I was going to be running out of good news. So I was like, oh, maybe I'll just do it for a month or two until I run out. Fast forward a year and I'm actually cheating. I am shoehorning two or three pieces of good news into every week's newsletter. So let me share a couple of those pieces of good news with you. So in the United States now, there's been a 38% increase in the last five years in the number of cities and states that have climate resilience plans that specifically protect vulnerable and low-income communities from the impacts of climate change. That is great news. Renewable energy is growing so quickly that it is taking over already as we're building way more renewable energy than fossil fuels. And solar energy is the cheapest form of electricity the world has ever known, which is perfect for people who live in energy poverty. I live in Texas, where we now have more wind and solar energy than any other state in the country, in Texas of all places. And I know that everyone from churches to army bases to farmers are stepping up to be part of the clean energy revolution. And I also know that this doesn't just help us with climate change, it helps us with health. 
Burning coal and gas and oil kills millions of people around the world every year. And every step we take towards a cleaner future literally saves lives. And if that doesn't give you hope, I don't know what does. Catherine Hayhoe, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. Thank you for having me. And we will be right back. Nicole here. If you're looking for a podcast that features inspiring conversations with theologians, ministers, and pastors, then I recommend adding the acclaimed show No Small Endeavor to your podcast queue. Produced by Great Feeling Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests like the queen of Christian pop, Amy Grant, and pastor and theologian Tish Harrison Warren to ask what it means to live a life worth living. If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times bestselling author and host of the wildly popular podcast, Revisionist History. They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. It's absolutely worth a listen. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we are back, and joining us for this next conversation is CT contributor and Bulletin regular Hannah Anderson. Hannah, welcome back to the Bulletin. Great to be back, Mike. Okay, so I was excited to have you join us for this conversation because we're going to talk about the word of the year. It's that time. The end of the year is here. The Spotify unwrapped playlists are showing up online, (laughs) and Merriam-Webster has announced that their word of the year for this year was authentic. And I have to say, I was actually really surprised that this word came up. I feel like this could have been the word of the year five years ago, 10 years ago, 25 years ago, but apparently it was big this year. There's a number of definitions that they provide for it. Not false, true to one's own personality, worthy of acceptance or believing is conforming. And they connected it to things like AI. They connected it to culture, like the culture of identity and social media. Hannah... I was curious to hear your thoughts. I'm with you, Mike, that I was surprised because maybe the word of the year would be passe because it felt like we already did this and we've been having this conversation. You're Gen X, right? Ish, like late Gen X. This was our thing, that we were authentic. That was the whole point. But I think when I read the explanation, I thought maybe something else was triggering it. Maybe it was AI and chat GPT and all of that bringing it to the surface again. Initially, when I heard the word, I thought of identity issues and I had to go read what they meant by real or true. But yeah, I was a little underwhelmed. I love the word authentic. My challenge is authentic means too many different things to too many different people. To the skeptic, authentic means broken and willing to talk about all of your issues and your flaws. To the millennials, authentic means like you just say it like it is, as raw and rude and crazy as it needs to be. So while I like the idea of authenticity, and I think that's been validated, even Barna's Gen Z research talks about how that openness, that authenticity, that sense of belonging is so important to that next generation. I wasn't surprised by that. I think I struggle with, yeah, but 
who's saying authentic and what do we actually mean? It does mm -hmm. trouble me. That could mean anything to anybody, depending on who you ask. Part of this for me, part of the reason I hate the word authentic is because it's like a branding exercise. Like when you put the word real next to anything in branding, it's not real. Like as soon as you have to say that something is innovative, if you have to slap that label on it, that it's not actually what, whatever that is, that you're trying to upsell something else. And I think there's something about social media that kind of trains us to interact with much of our lives in that way. We think of ourselves as like Shakespeare's phrase, like all the world's a stage and we are but players on it. And so we think of the world that way. And then as a sort of countercultural idea, we think, I just want to be authentic. I want to be my real self. And what I hate about that concept is that's always a myth. Like the, I'm going to be my authentic self in whatever situation it, it is. I show up with my family in an authentic way, but that's very different than the way I show up with my friends or with my coworkers. But I just reject the idea that means that I'm inauthentic in any one of those situations because I'm being authentic to the responsibilities that are before me in any one of those roles, right? I think you're actually getting to something, Mike, where how we manifest ourselves or who we are, who we become as the self, really is dependent on relationship. And I think that's something that's missing within our kind of modern sense of self that's pretty hermetically sealed and distilled. Like there's an essence of me that is the pure self that I just have to find. And it doesn't really account for the ways that community shapes and forms us that we are the people we are because of the relationships that we have. And different contexts bring forward different parts of us. I don't think that's in any way inauthentic. I think it just speaks to the nature of self. It speaks to how we know ourselves. Like I would know myself differently because I'm a mother versus when I'm writing or speaking. And all of that comes together to form the authentic self. But it's not like there is this pure Hannah that exists apart from the relationships I exist in. I'm open to the idea that there is. But if there is, it's a whole that can be known and seen by God and in a way that no one else can experience you in that sense. When you think about it, how the scriptures even describe us as somewhat of a mystery to ourselves, that God knows our inmost thoughts, that he doesn't see as man sees and all of this. When you think about the search for authenticity, becoming your true self, like all of that sort of modern language that often gets imported into spiritual formation language, I think there's a value to it. I don't want to just throw it out the window, the true self, false self distinctions. I think there's good things to be taken from that. But I do think it also just has its limits. And one of the things that was interesting was in the article that they published, we'll link to it in the show notes, where they talked about why this word was important. Two people they pointed to that were very interesting as examples of this were Taylor Swift and Elon Musk. And Musk in particular talking about how in the last year he's really truly embraced this sort of trollish persona on Twitter that's been very shocking to lots of people. And as a comment on it, he said, I think people just need to be more authentic online. And then the Taylor Swift reference was a reference to an article that was something to the effect of what you can learn from Taylor Swift's authenticity. And I just want to laugh my head off at both of those examples because I no shade on Taylor Swift, right? But that is a performance. Everything she does with her social media, with her songs, all of it, it is a brilliantly crafted performance. 
which is what bonds her to the fans. And that's not wrong. Right. That's not bad that right. it's a performance. It's not, it's bad that Elon's thing is a performance. I don't know that's a performance. <laughs> I think that might be. Which becomes more scary. He was yeah. rewarded. There was a reward for not adhering to social conventions. And I think that's the other thing about how community draws certain things out of us. Like what is acceptable, what is rewarded? And then we lean hard into that. And I think even maybe that's part of the yeah. Trump effect too. I'm going to show up. I'm going to be my authentic self. And I'm like, no, you're just being a right. jerk. Maybe. There is an entertainment value of quote unquote authenticity. And the challenge I have is people think that Taylor Swift and Elon Musk are more authentic than any Christian preacher or pastor they could think of. And when I try to apply the word authentic to what I see on the landscape of the church, is the church authentic because they're open like, hey, we're a bunch of broken people. You know, at our church, we're like, if you're looking for the perfect church, you can't join it because then you'd make it imperfect. Is that what makes an authentic church? So I am I'm troubled, as you can hear, but I don't know what an authentic, I wonder what Merriam Webster would say, this is the definition of an authentic church or an authentic Christian, because clearly the most authentic mm -hmm. people they think of are not mm -hmm. believers. It's funny when you say that because I remember reading an article about Carl Lentz earlier this year related to the Hillsong thing and how often the word authentic came up around him. And it's a perfect example of it because you watch and he's so emotive on stage and he shares these vulnerable stories mm -hmm. and he cries a lot on stage. There's a lot of crying. And so you can understand why people would attach authentic to that. And there probably is an authenticity to it, but it's also a performance. Like, I've been on stage enough in my life preaching and playing music and doing different things that, like, I know what – if you cry on stage, you have allowed yourself to go there. That doesn't mean it's fake, mm -hmm. but it does mean that you are emoting in public in a performative way. That Again, that doesn't mean that it's fake. That doesn't mean that it's wrong. And that's part of what I don't like about the language of authenticity yeah. is that it creates this expectation that, like – I'm supposed to be vulnerable and transparent everywhere I go 24 hours a day and really when it's you actually shouldn't like it's good to be guarded at times. It's good to have a responsibility. I say this to worship leaders all the time. Your job when you show up on Sunday morning is not to go be your true authentic self. It's to wash the feet of the church that has shown up and serve them with these songs. And if you're in a bad place, like your job is not to communicate, man, I'm in a really bad place this morning to the congregation. You're not going to serve them. That's not your job. And I think so much of that also goes back to this conversation about what we share with who we share. And the digital age has flattened all of the boundaries that we typically would understand about proximity and relationship. And so there is really a lack of the way I think of it is modesty in the sense of what is revealed to whom at what time. And quite frankly, there's just a lot about our personal world that doesn't belong to other people and we shouldn't be putting it out there. So my one question I was burning to ask both of you, what would have been a better word? Because I like authentic, but what would have been a better word? Other words that were runners-up were included deepfake, coronation, dystopian, mm -hmm. EGOT, oh, implode, which that's a sad that's a sad example. But those were the big ones this year. I don't know that I would have had a better one. With that said, Hannah Anderson, thank you for joining us. We will be back.
This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. We're back, and I am really looking forward, Mike, to talking with you about your recent trip to Israel. I am eager to hear what happened, and let's start first with why you went and why now. The story of what's been going on in Israel since October 7th has really captured my imagination in a lot of ways. So my background with this, I've first went to Israel back in 2015, was back a few years later with another group, with a, a group of artists that I went over with and led a trip. And then since then have stayed connected to several ministries that are involved with Jewish-Christian relations, some nonprofits that do Jewish-Christian relations stuff and advocacy related to anti-Semitism, that sort of thing. And it's been a passion of mine for a really long time. Like undergrad, for me, a lot of what I studied in undergrad was philosophy related to totalitarianism, the Holocaust, anti-Semitism, and, and ideology. And when the story emerged, what I've often said to people is, October 7th was shocking in many ways. And then what's happened since October 7th has continued to intensify the shock, both in terms of truly learning how horrible the crimes of that day were, the violence of the war that has broken out since then, and then this surge of anti-Semitism that's been happening around the United States, around the world, crimes against Jews all across the country. Last night, they were lighting the Christmas tree at Rockefeller Center, not exactly the center of Jewish life in New York City when you're lighting a Christmas tree, right? And the ceremony was disrupted by protesters that were chanting both pro-Palestine slogans, but at times very anti-Semitic slogans and that sort of thing. The concern for me has been this sense of this being a, a moment of real moral crisis and We've been covering it on the bulletin. We've had a number of interviews around this story. And then an opportunity opened up a couple of weeks ago where we realized that we could have some access with the IDF to go to Kafar Aza and see the sites of some of these crimes. And with that, open up some conversations to be able to go to the West Bank, talk to some Palestinian Christians, talk about what they're experiencing, and a number of other people. And so I went over, I was over there a little less than a week and days packed full of conversations to find out what's happening there and, and how that can inform what how we think as the church over here. Give us a high-level overview of who you spoke to and maybe some of your favorite conversations. It was remarkable. We were welcomed to speak to a, a wide variety of people. I talked to a lot of just ordinary everyday Israelis and people who work jobs like work as tour guides and are trying to deal with what the economy is now that the country has suddenly shut down. It was such a weird feeling to be in Israel. Because when you go to Israel, you fly into Ben Gurion Airport. It's an extremely busy airport most of the time. It was a ghost town. You drive into Tel Aviv, this vibrant city. We drove in at rush hour in Tel Aviv. No traffic. The place was empty. We stayed in Jerusalem. We got up that next morning and 
we had a couple hours before our first appointment. And I was like, I want to go over and see the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. This is historically the site where the Golgotha and both the empty tomb are inside this church. And there, there was literally no one there. There was literally, when I say no one there, normally it's a two hour wait to get into the Shrine of the Resurrection. There was no one there. And so being in this place that has just suddenly emptied out and where I think they said something like 5% of the population has been called up into active duty and is in the, the Gaza envelope prepared for war. It was wild. So we talked to a lot of ordinary, everyday Israelis. We talked to a number of political leaders on both the right and the left. We went to a mountaintop settlement in the West Bank, which is one of these very controversial places in the country. We also went to Bethlehem and we spoke to a number of Palestinian Christians, Christian leaders there. I spent an evening with a member of the Waqf, which is the the Muslim clerics that oversee the Al-Aqsa Mosque complex, which is also known as the Temple Mount. And then we went down to the Gaza envelope and talked to a number of people who experienced 10-7 directly and heard their stories, heard what's happening there. It sounds like you've gotten a wide swath of opinions, which feels lacking in some spaces of media today. And even since your trip... Things have changed. We've got release of hostages, and at least for now, at this time, it seems to be a ceasefire. What do you make of what is happening now compared to what you experienced on the ground? One of the things that's very apparent when you're in Israel and talking to people is how front of mind the hostages are. So everywhere you go, the posters of the hostages are everywhere. They fill store windows. They fill billboards. I think at least twice while we were there, there were marches, one in Tel Aviv and one in Jerusalem, that attracted more than 100,000 people to come out to call for bringing the hostages home. But what's interesting is... And part of that comes back to actually Jewish culture and Jewish religion. The way one, some, one person put it to me, they said, it's a sort of duty-bound mitzvah to ransom hostages. And it's baked into Jewish culture. It's baked into Israeli culture. There's a very famous case more, more than a decade ago of a Jewish hostage where the exchange was to get him back. His last name was Shalit. To get him back, it, more than a thousand Palestinian prisoners were exchanged to get him back. And so the sense of like urgency of getting the hostages home is huge. But I would say that that urgency is equaled by a demand from the people to end Hamas and to make sure that Hamas never has the capacity to do these things again, which is why it's almost funny kind of reading talk of ceasefire from American politicians saying we have now's the time to demand a ceasefire and all of this kind of stuff. Because I, I just don't think that even if every American politician lined up tomorrow saying we must demand a ceasefire, we must end this war, I don't think it would have any effect on what the Israelis do whatsoever because their sense of urgency is completely different. And that's one of the things you experience when you're there is how small this country is. Like Kfar Aza, this kibbutz we, we toured, it's five kilometers from Gaza. And you're like just a little over three miles from the Gaza border. And they had dozens of their members were taken hostage and more than 50 of them were murdered that day. And the whole place was decimated. The buildings were burned. It was just absolute mayhem on the ground. Those people want to go back home. They want to rebuild. They want to restart their lives there. These are not settlements in illegal territory. These are not the, the Kafar Aza. I, I believe it's somewhere around like eighty years old. It's been around for a very long time, 
And so the idea is that the Israeli government is going to have to be able to tell the people who live there or who live in Sterot or who live in Beri that it's okay to go home and that it's safe to go home. And until there's a sense that Hamas has been defeated, that's not going to happen. The war will have to restart. And I think today actually is a case in point. This morning in Jerusalem, there was a terror attack at a bus stop where two were murdered. And I, I think the number was up to 16 before we started recording here were also injured or shot. And then Hamas took responsibility for that terror attack. So this wasn't two random gunmen. Hamas said, we did this in the middle of the ceasefire. The other thing that happened today is that the ceasefire was extended based on these terms that each day Hamas would return 10 hostages for an extended day of ceasefire. Today, they're returning eight hostages and three dead bodies. And a report that came out just before we were recorded here was that the three dead bodies are the Bibas family, which includes a 10-month-old baby that they say had died in their custody. They've pronounced people dead before that they then released from captivity a few days later. And we hope and pray that's the case and that family comes home today. But I think the idea for Israelis, the idea that the war would stop now when Hamas has proven, hey, we can still inflict terror damages on you guys. We, we did it today. We still have a, more than 100 of your people in our hands. And we're committed to continuing the terror on your people, no matter what we say, no matter what the world tells them, I think the Israelis have a sense of duty to their people that is going to continue the process. When I hear you speak about these experiences, I remember just the deep complexities that have been taking place over generations. This is not something that happened on 10-7. This goes generations before that. And it seems to me that the American response is either to immediately jump to a side and make this a very black and white, right and wrong situation, regardless of what side they choose to believe is right or wrong, or they completely ignore it and act as if there's always been trouble in the Middle East. What do you feel like Americans need to know that perhaps before your trip, you wouldn't have thought that Americans needed to know? Man, it's a great question. I do think the knee-jerk response of, wow, this is complicated, I don't know how to judge this. I think that's deeply morally problematic. It's morally lazy. It says, oh, this is difficult. I'm not going to bother with it. I'm not going to make a judgment. Where I think there are things that we can judge that are very black and white. Like we can say mass rape and mass murder are evil, period. There is no justification for them, no matter the circumstances. I think we can have a real conversation about what is a war crime? What does it mean to target civilians? At the same time, I think one of the things that was apparent being over there and talking to a lot of people is that there's a culture gap in terms of the way terror is understood, the way violence is understood. For instance, one of the things somebody said to me, they said, every time we talk to an American and they say, explain to me the rationale for Hamas's attacks. Why did they do it? And he said the point was not ultimately a game of a moral calculus that says we will get what we want down the line. Yeah. The point was an expression of power because in a sort of jihadist framework for the world, the expressions of power, the expressions of violence, the expressions of destruction are an end in and of themselves. The point was the death. The point was the destruction. And so that's where I think a lot of the disconnect comes in because we want to be able to say – 
this happened, and this the, some of the phrases you hear, this happened because of the occupation, or this happened because of, they called it the Al-Aqsa flood, and it happened because of these things that were happening around Al-Aqsa, or it was this, that, or the other. You're looking for a different kind of moral calculus than actually exists inside this particular ideology, which is about, it's totalitarian, it's about the ultimate destruction of the Jewish people in the land, and it thrives on expressions of power and the celebration of death itself. That's why they broadcast it. That's why they did the things they did. That's why they dragged the bodies through the streets of Gaza and people came out and celebrated. And those are hard realities. Like it's a, it's an incomprehensible world to most of us. Thankfully, it's incomprehensible. But I think we have to look at it seriously and, and grimly if we want to make a right moral calculation on our end about what we think comes next. Give us a little bit of an overview of the series. We're taking people into the homes, the lives, the offices, the churches, the synagogues of Israelis, Palestinians, Jews, Christians, Muslims. I want to talk about what makes this place unique. Like, why is it that this country that's smaller than New Jersey has such a disproportionate amount of influence on the world around us? Why are we so attracted to it? I do think ultimately the answer to that question is spiritual. These are the places that the most important events in human history took place, from the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, to the God's covenant with Abraham, to the, the home of the temple. I, I also want to talk about the stuff that's that's live on the ground in Israel, what's happening with not just the political dynamics, but the spiritual dynamics. Like what role does religion and spirituality play in the lives of the people there? Um, I, I was stunned how often the idea of the temple, the idea of a future temple, the idea of the Messiah came up in these ordinary conversations. I think that'll be a remarkable thing for a lot of listeners. And then, of course, we're going to talk about the Christian presence there and the challenges Christians face and the role of faithful Christian witness in this conflict. I am definitely looking forward to it. I'm very grateful for how thorough your conversations were. So thank you for going. Thanks for doing that work. And I'm going to dare and speak on behalf of a whole lot of people and say we can't wait to hear it. Thanks. I'm looking forward to sharing it with everybody. That's it for us. We'll see you next week. Bulletin is a production of Christianity Today. It's executive produced by Eric Petrick and Mike Cosper. It's produced by Clarissa Mall and Matt Stevens. Post-production by TJ Hester. Our art for this episode is by Rick Shooks. Music by Dan Phelps. And social media by Kate Lucky. Thanks for listening. This episode was brought to you in part by The Table Podcast at Dallas Theological Seminary. Listen to rotating hosts discuss issues of God and culture to demonstrate theology's relevance in everyday life. Find it on your podcast app. For videos and more, visit dts.edu podcast.